be continuing on in our series in the book of John. Uh, we've been going in through this for over a year. We're taking breaks at various times, but we'll be going back into chapter 19, uh, which again is Jesus um, heading to the cross and being put onto the cross. Uh, the last time that we considered this, probably about a month, month and a half ago, uh, the topic that we were kind of looking at was that uh, for the joy set before him, Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Uh, in other words, uh, the shame had no hold on him and had no meaning to him uh, because of the truth of who he was and, and what he was doing in that. Uh, that Jesus did this uh, in our place and then also then shame has no hold upon us. Uh, today, though, we're going to be looking at another event while Jesus was on the cross. Uh, and this one relates to something that can give us great joy in life, uh, but also great pain in life. Uh, and there's a few things in life that, that tend to do this. Uh, but this one in particular, again, great joy, great pain, uh, and that's family. Uh, family can cause both of those things to happen. We can rejoice over the birth of a child. We can mourn deeply over the loss of a loved one. Uh, there's times when everything feels like it's clicking together great. Uh, there's times when it feels like we're in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, and Jesus here uh, is addressing the care of family in the passage that we're going to look at. Uh, in John chapter 19, we'll be starting in verse 17 to kind of give us some context. And we'll go forward from there. Uh, but let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And I just ask and pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work um, as we look to these words within your holy word. Uh, that it would be alive and active to us. I pray that you would guide my words, that you would guide our thoughts, uh, and that you would help us to submit to the work that you do uh, within us. Uh, because your word does not return void. Um, and that we'd be able to examine ourselves uh, and to allow for that work to happen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, beginning in verse 17, again, just to get some context as we go forward. Uh, in verse 17, he's carrying the cross by himself, went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now we're going to skip to verse 25 here, but in between that, you have the soldiers who are casting lots over Jesus' garments. Uh, but then in verse 25, it says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so I just think that this is a, an important place to kind of set the tone for what we're going to look at here. Uh, Jesus has gone through this mock trial. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's carried the cross himself uh, to this place called the skull. Uh, and his mom has kind of been following along the whole time, watching all of this. Uh, on top of that, here the soldiers are now betting on his clothing or casting lots to see who gets his clothing. Uh, and, and a good likelihood is that uh, his mother Mary may have actually made some of those clothes um, that were lots were being cast around for. Uh, and so I just, again, it's when I read scripture, I, I really like to kind of almost envision or put myself into the place of what's happening. Uh, sometimes it can be really cool and fun, uh, you know, like Jesus walking on water, the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. Uh, this is one of those times that uh, when you envision this scene uh, of Jesus bloody on the cross, can't move, can't get down um, without calling angels and, and actually ruining the whole plan. Um, but his mom's right there. 
And so just to kind of envision the, the emotions that are kind of happening at this moment. What, what is his mother feeling at that point? I, I'm guessing with tears streaming down her face uh, as her son is there. And, and knowing all of the miracle behind his birth, right? And so she's sitting there and she is in pain. She is in anguish uh, watching this. But then also consider the perspective of Jesus. Like, like fully knowing everything set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. So, so knowing everything that was going to happen, he still willingly had to the cross to, to endure through this in order to bear the weight of sin in our place that we can find the, the freedom of forgiveness and, and salvation through the sacrifice that he paid. Willingly did all of that, but, but and we consider often the, the anguish that he may have went through physically and, and possibly uh, emotionally. But how often do you think of what it would be like for him to be on that cross and there's his mom. And she's crying and in pain. And so this is like an emotionally, physically, painfully charged situation here. And so what does Jesus do uh, in this moment? Right there, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The very next verse, in verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to your mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here's your mother. And, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now again, I put myself into this situation, right? And, and if I'm there, being in the middle of being executed, and, and here's my mom and a friend of mine, I, I think the words that would probably come out of my mouth are more along the lines of, um, why don't you take her home? Like, like, she doesn't need to see this. She doesn't need to, like, like, why don't you take her home? Like, and again, that would be such, like, a, almost a self-focused thing, right? Like, like, I'm sitting here trying to, like, endure whatever's about to happen and, and not necessarily wanting her to experience that and, and everything. But instead, what he says here, seeing her is, woman, here's your son. And then to the disciple, here's your mother. I just want to take a, a sidestep for a second here. Uh, as a side note, this passage is actually one of the passages often used by Catholicism um, in actually to, to elevate Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, and so they look to a number of different passages. This is one of them that they use. And they look at this passage. And what they say is that instead of Jesus saying to Mary, okay, you're going to be taken care of by John. What, uh, what Catholics will say is that this is Jesus saying to John, Mary's going to take care of you. And, and John, being the only disciple or apostle uh, mentioned in this passage, they take it symbolically as saying all of the apostles are now underneath Mary, underneath the care uh, of Mary. And it doesn't match this at all because it literally says, he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And so here he is caring for her. You continue to look into scripture. Uh, and the last mention of Mary in scripture is in Acts chapter 1. Uh, while she's there in the upper room for Pentecost 33 CE. And then she's never mentioned again. 
And so if Jesus was elevating her over the apostles, our expectation would be then to hear all about her through the book of Acts, through the rest of the epistles. When they're wondering what to do about circumcision or not, you don't see them saying, hey, Mary, what do you think? Uh, And so it doesn't make sense. But I just, when I find things like this, to me it's at least interesting to say when people believe different things, do they elevate Mary um, into the, the place of faith? Uh, why do they do that? And this is one of those passages. So just a side note on that. But at the cross, uh, Jesus is simply ensuring uh, the care for his mother. He's making sure that she is going to be taken care of since he's not going to be there anymore. This care and honor was part of the Mosaic law uh, and something that Jesus actually reaffirmed while he was on earth. Matthew chapter 15 uh, puts it this way in chapter, or verse 1. It says, then Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Uh, and so again, this is the Pharisees just trying to stir up problems and trouble uh, by bringing up aspects of the tradition of the elders. This would be that oral law, the oral code, the, the things that they made up on their own uh, and the hundreds of different rules on top of the Mosaic law. Uh, And so they're just trying to stir trouble with this. Uh, But Christ's answer here uh, brings up this aspect of family. He said, uh, why do you break God's commandments because of your tradition? In other words, there's the Mosaic law. This is what God has given you to follow and obey. And yet you create all of these other oral laws that help you to escape what God's called you to obey. Verse 4, for God said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of, fa- of the father or mother must be put to death. Um, thankful that the Mosaic law was fulfilled in Christ's death. And that that wasn't in place when I was a teenager. Right? Um, because I, I certainly was rebellious at times to my parents. But in verse 5... It says, but you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Uh, And so in other words, the the Mosaic law was saying, you need to honor your father and mother. You you need to take care of them. Uh, When they get to a point in their life where they're unable to work, where they're unable to uh, have an income, you are responsible to take care of your parents. But what the Pharisees did is they had this oral law, this verbal tradition that they created uh, in order to gain money for the temple. And so essentially what they allowed for was this loophole for people to like, okay, well, if my parents were were getting elderly and they needed care, um, but I didn't necessarily want to support them, I could say all of my wealth all of my provisions when I die are going to go to the church. And and so because of that, if I help out my parents now, I'm actually going to give less to God. And and God wouldn't want that. So I'm going to hold on to what I have for now and and use it however I feel like I want to use it until I die. And and then it's all going to go to the church. And, And what that was doing is basically allowing for people to hold on to their wealth and not then to care for their parents uh, who had raised them, who had that burden that whole life for themselves. And so Jesus is calling them out on this and reinforcing the importance of honoring the father and the mother. 
And so then, therefore, with Jesus as our example, we're called to do the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6 puts it this way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Throughout Scripture, we see these directions and commandments uh, in order to honor our fathers and our mothers, to be grateful for the provision of, of life itself. Without them, we're not here on this earth. To provide for their care for them when needed, whether that's financially or, or just with our time. Now, this isn't in a sense of, of being controlled by parents or manipulated by parents or there might be situations where there are strained relationships and, and difficulties as we find oftentimes with a family that things get painful. But there's still this aspect of this gratefulness and honor for the fact that we're breathing air right now because of our parents. And it's something that scripture calls us uh, to honor our parents in these ways. And it's the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with us. When it's difficult in these situations, we need to use the grace and love that Jesus showed to us. And even the love and grace that Jesus showed uh, even to his enemies. He never belittled them. He never spoke. Uh, he was harsh at times when, when that was needed in a corrective way. But he never despised his enemies. He never tore them down. He just pointed out where those faults were so that people wouldn't continue to follow the Pharisees. We're called to do the same thing within family relationships um, where, again, things might be difficult. There might be pain. There might be betrayal. But that doesn't mean we still can't honor our parents. We still can't honor our family. We still can't love and care for them in ways, if it's rejected, is rejected. But what we're called to do is imitate Christ. To make sure that we do this honor, that we do as far as what is uh, right for us in reflecting God and his commandments uh, within these things, uh, even if it's difficult at times. But the question here, though, is, is not just about family in the sense of DNA. Because here Jesus, uh, he's on the cross, and he's speaking to John. And he's saying to John, here's your mother. And here's your son. Now Jesus had brothers. Right? So, so why wasn't he just assuming that his brothers would take care of his mother uh, after he was gone? At this point, uh, Jesus' brothers still did not believe in him that, that he was the Messiah. And so as Jesus was making this declaration, what he is doing is making sure that both his mother's physical and spiritual care uh, was being cared for. And through this, he's showing that the connection through Christ is more than just genetics, and it's actually more uh, than just uh, DNA family. He pointed to this in Matthew chapter 12 earlier in his ministry, in verse 46. So while he was speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
Stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so here he's pointing to a greater aspect of family, not just through blood ties and DNA, but through actually his upcoming sacrifice. Uh, another instance in this, as he was going through this ministry, uh, there was this rich young ruler that had came up to him. He's like, I've followed these commandments. What else must I do? And Jesus' response to him was, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The rich young ruler at that point went away sad because he had great wealth and, and he was hesitant. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us if he ever does go and sell everything that he has and, and follows Christ. Uh, but his idol was certainly his riches in that point. However, right after that instance, the disciples went up to Jesus because they had left their income. They had left the things of money. They had left the lives that they were leading in order to follow him. So Peter says, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus' response in verse 29 is, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. I think this passage is one that is far deeper than we often consider. And far more meaningful to our life as Christian brothers and sisters than we want to consider. When we look at this, what he's saying is that if we give up our lives, if we let go of worldly attachments and we pursue after Christ as our Lord and Savior, if he is the priority in our life, that, that even if we make those decisions and, and we lose stuff because of it, even through persecution, it's saying. You lose a house because of persecution. It would have happened at that time. If you have family that disown you or don't talk to you or disagree with you because you're Christian, and, and because of that, there's, there's conflict. What Jesus is saying here is that, again, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life. But it says now at this time. How is that possible? How does that work? Well, again, the concept is, is if we've come to the point of salvation... And we've said to God, like, our life is yours. Everything that I am is yours. We acknowledge him as the creator. We acknowledge him as provider. We acknowledge him as savior. We come to a point of, of realization then is all things are his. Everything is his. The air that we breathe is his. The, the trees are his. The money in my pocket is his. The, the way my brain works in order to do work to earn money is his. The strength of my body is his. Everything is his. Even when it comes to children, 
they're his. It's a gift from the Lord that we're called to be stewards of. And so if we come to this realization of the lordship of Jesus Christ, we're coming to a realization that we're just simply temporary stewards of physical things for as long as we're still here on earth, right? Until we die, and then somebody else becomes steward of that, or until Jesus comes back, and we don't need to be stewards of it anymore. So in other words, the house that I own, I need to rephrase. The house that is my father's, I'm a steward of. The house that is your father's, you're a steward of. And so how many houses does my father own in that concept when there are millions of Christians throughout the world? And so what he's saying in this passage is, as we become family through the blood of Christ, you will receive a hundred times more, now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields. Because they're all his. And this is where it gets into the point of this passage. We, we like the idea of, I have brothers and sisters within this room. And, and I love having brothers and sisters within this room. We have a closer tie to one another than I have with my earthly sister that doesn't know Jesus Christ. We are connected eternally through the blood of Jesus. That's the easy aspect of this passage. The hard aspect of this passage is then also saying none of us own anything as brothers and sisters. Our Father owns it all. And so therefore, how do we act as siblings that are also stewards? We see it get really ugly in the world at times when a parent dies. Right? And, and there's like an inheritance that's written out. My mom already... Because this happened with, with her and her brothers and sisters. Uh, when her mom had died, um, there was just this infighting among brothers and sisters over who got what. And, and it, there was land involved and a building involved and there was backstabbing involved and, and all these things as everybody's trying to grab what was theirs. And, and so my mom right now, even at this point, is, is in this aspect of like she's putting labels on everything. Like, like, like it's this vase, and on the bottom of the vase, if I pick it up, it's going to be my name or one of my two sisters' names on the bottom of that vase. And I'm like, you got another 30 years at least. Like, what are you doing? And she's like, I just don't want you guys to fight, right? How often are we doing that in a sense as brothers and sisters in Christ? We may not be physically fighting over things. But how difficult is it to actually share sometimes? How difficult is it to actually, like, share what we have as though it's not our own? As if it's our father's that we're just a steward of. I think it's a difficult thing for us to truly consider what this passage is actually saying here. Uh, because it's not saying... I'm going to get, I have a house now, so if I lose my house, it's not saying I am going to have the title in my name for another hundred houses. But what it's saying is if we have the right attitude as brothers and sisters in Christ, my home is for you if you need it. 
And your home is for me if I need it. It's, it's my Father's home that's for all of us. And so how do we live that out in a right and responsible way uh, in order to be able to, to care for one another in these things? John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 puts it this way, and I'm skipping a couple ahead, David. Uh, it says, this is how we have to come to know love, that he laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in words or speech, but in action and truth. And so again, it's that aspect. If, if I see a fellow brother or sister in Christ who is in need, who is in definite, desperate need, and I don't do anything about it, it would be the very, very same thing as if I'm simply a steward of my dad's wealth. And my sister is a steward of my dad's wealth. And she's fallen on hard times. And I'm like, nope, sorry, you get nothing. If it's not ours, if it's our father's, and it's there to care for each one of us, equally loved by him, and we don't take action in those situations, the question is, how does God's love reside in that? So how do we do this? I, I think it's more difficult for us because uh, we live in a society that looks to be independent. Right? Like that's one of our goals, right? To, to be independent, that, that we should be able to uh, work enough, to have enough money in order to, to be independent, to make the right choices, uh, to avoid all kinds of mistakes so that we don't fall into a situation where we need the help of others. We, we put so much value and importance uh, on being able to be independent that it becomes hard for us to ask for help when we need help. And it actually becomes hard for us to give help when others are in help need help rather because of this idea of of independence when we see somebody asking for help what goes through our mind why do they need help what what mistakes have they made will they be a good steward of what i give to them that is mine like like all of these questions pop into our mind based on the judgment of well they should be independent they shouldn't need help they should be okay and if I help them, that's affecting my own ability to be independent and okay and stable. And, and so this idea of this independence or this self-sustaining aspect of being alone has crept into our communities that I think really affects our ability to reach out and take care of people. This wasn't the case, actually, for much of humanity. And there was a really cool story in the news this week. Um, from a city in Minnesota, um, coming out of Frost, Minnesota. So there was a farmer um, who was uh, driving to go pick up some gravel. And as he's driving along to pick up some gravel, uh, there was a little cute German shepherd puppy that ran into the middle of the road. Uh, and so this farmer swerves to miss the dog, loses control of his vehicle, flies off the side of the road, gets knocked out, can't move, uh, ends up with a broken shoulder blade, collarbone, seven broken ribs, two cracked vertebrae. Feels like a Christmas song right here. <laughs> Sorry, like all of a sudden I'm reading it. I'm like, 
you know, in a partridge in a pear tree. Anyways, so, there, so a broken collarbone, shoulder blade, seven broken ribs, two cracked vertebrae, a collapsed lung, and a concussion. Um, over swerving to avoid this German shepherd puppy. Now, what he's worried about at that time is the upcoming harvest six weeks away uh, in this month. How is he going to do that? And, and what happens in that moment is actually surrounding farmers uh, within the community that he knows actually rallied together uh, and harvested his soybean crop and actually returning in later in this month to take care of the corn. And, and so they all have their own things that they need to be worrying about and doing. But there's this aspect of, of rallying around somebody who's in need to help them through this time uh, of need. We've gotten into a, a place where it still happens within our community. But again, uh, in a sense, it's also rare because we're so compartmentalized. And we look to come together to be the body of Christ, but we do it in such a way that we want to be okay and self-sustaining in our little pod of family or individuality. And we want to connect our little pod to the rest of the church as long as it doesn't disrupt our comfortable little pod. But what he's saying here in this is that we receive all of these things because they're God's and not ours. This is why the church, in Acts chapter 2, it says that they actually went and sold some of their belongings in order to give to those that were in need. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we necessarily are going to do in that, okay, let's go sell everything and make sure that, that nobody's broke here or, or anything like that. Because this all has to be done within the sense of relationship and discipleship. The example given here that we're going to look at this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Going back a few now, David. Um, chapter 5, verses 3 um, through 8. It says, support widows who are genuinely in need. So, so right there, that takes relationship, right? Because it's not just saying, support widows. Every single widow, you should be giving them money. It's not saying that. It's saying support widows that are genuinely in need. So that takes relationship. That takes knowing and understanding the situation. This is the command to the church. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness towards their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. Again, this ties back into the family and DNA and needing to honor our parents. He's saying, if there's children, let them learn to practice godliness and repay their parents. Again, there's a debt that I have to my mother and father that I could never repay the fact that I'm standing here and breathing. And God calls us to honor that. He doesn't say in this situation, oh, only do this if you're on good standing with your parents. What he's saying is, this is practicing godliness in honoring our parents when they are in need. Verse 7, command this also so that they will be uh, above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So right within this, there is a command to take care of our parents, 
But if that's not happening, there's a command to the church then to make sure that people are cared for within their need. And again, that's not the organization. That's not in our circumstance like, oh, well, here's Mercy Hill and here's Mercy Hill's bank account. I give to Mercy Hill's bank account. So it's Mercy Hill that's supposed to take care of the widows. That type of 401c3 organization was not in existence at this time. But the church was the gathered believers and followers of Christ. So it's as if he would be saying to us, all of us, all of you, let's take care of this person. We're to do this even more so again for our family in God. John chapter 13 I give you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This connects to a verse that we had read a little bit ago in John chapter 3, 16. This is how we come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's good and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion, how does God's love reside in him. This aspect of laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters is not talking about us dying in their place. But it's laying down our priorities at times. It's laying down our possessions at times. Because of love. And the fact that my possession actually isn't my possession. I'm just a steward of it. And so if God is telling me to take care of somebody, he's calling me to use the things that he's given me to steward in order to make it happen. The only way that we can do this is by standing firmly in the truth that God is our Father. We all have the same Father. We all have the same provider. Our checks may be signed by different corporations, different businesses, or maybe you own your own business. The money comes in from all kinds of different ways. God is the provider, though. We have to acknowledge that basic truth. That he's our father. That we are deeply, intimately, spiritually connected in a way that is miraculous because of the blood of Christ. We're in this life together because of what Jesus did for us. And we're called to run this race together. It's not this individual aspect where, all right, well, we'll see you when I get to the finish line. But we're called to help each other to get there as well. If we come to that mindset and see each other truly as brothers and sisters and ourselves simply as stewards, then it becomes easier to have grace for one another it becomes easier to have forgiveness for one another. It becomes easier to, to help share the provision of our Father for one another. I think it's a call for it to be more difficult than what we've settled into comfortably doing within our life. Again, this is, we're talking a bit uh, about finances and material provision. But it's not just material. It's also with our time. It's also with our resources. It's also with our abilities. It's meant to be done uh, through community and discipleship, which takes sacrifice as well. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
since we have the boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Uh, just again, right there, as we read that, like, what an exclusive group we belong to. Like, like how often do you think about it? it it's not just like, okay, um, I'm a Christian, you're my brothers and sisters, we go to the same church on Sundays. We, we do the same potlucks sometimes. Right? But, but what it's saying here is we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, the holy of holies, the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. More than just being able to sit here at tables with one another, we are able to spiritually enter into the very presence of God with one another. Utterly exposed to Him. The God that sees all, knows all. Knows all of my flaws, my weaknesses, my strengths. Knows all of your flaws, your weaknesses, your strengths. And, and yet when we enter into his presence, he looks at us with such love and compassion and joy. And, and 1 Corinthians 12 says that he built the church. You should be here because this is where he has you to be. In other words, it's no accident that we're all together. And that we're called to go through this life together. This is all part of God's design and his plan. If you're simply coming because you like the way I speak, or you like our worship, or you like this building, you're here for the wrong reason. And, and I'm not telling you to leave, I'm just asking you to pray. Because God builds his church, and he puts people where he has them to be for a reason. Part of that is for the church to be able to pour into you, to be able to provide some spiritual food here and, and now again. But the other point is for you to pour into the church. Ephesians 4 says that we're, we're knit together and as each part is doing as it, as it should in the way that God has designed it, we will actually grow up into the reflection of Jesus Christ. That happens not because there's a good pastor preaching or there's a great children's ministry. It happens because we're all doing what God has brought us together to do. And that's what builds us up together. So he's died through the blood of Christ to purchase this. Verse 20, in order to, to begin or inaugurate a new and living way through the curtain, which is his flesh, into the holies of holies. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And since he who is promised is faithful, like, like all of these things, all of these verses are just this incredible reminder of the promises of God and the salvation that we have in him and all the gifts that he's given to us. 
The fact that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. The, the fact that right now we're seated with him in heavenly realms. The fact right now that my sins have been washed away. That your sins in Christ have been washed away through salvation. Like all of those things are true. And, and here Paul is reminding us in Hebrews that all of these things are true. And so let's hold on to our confession. And then in verse 24, because all of these things are true, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another <clears throat> all the more as you see the day approaching. It's about community and discipleship. And through community and discipleship, we sacrifice for one another. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice material things. And we do all of it because this is what Jesus died to gift to us. We've all had experiences in church that can be rocky and bumpy. And, and as this takes place, it will be rocky and bumpy because we're all imperfect people uh, learning to be like Jesus more, bumping up into each other at times. But I think, especially in our Western culture, there are aspects of, of the church and the family of God that Jesus died to give to us. That he died in order to pay for us to have a, a unity, a, a shared journey, a dependence on one another. He died for us to have these things. But I think in our Western culture and a pursuit of individuality and being self-contained or independent is robbing us of those things. And so as we consider these passages, do we consider our house, our field, our time to all be the Lord's? And if so, then how do we steward and how do we steward within community? Again, it's not like this sense of, well, here's my little bubble of my house and my little bubble of my car and the stuff that's in those things. But I think what God is actually calling us to is this vision of a vineyard. How often does he talk about being the owner of the vineyard and he's pruning us and shaping us and all of these things? And, and so if we come into that uh, mind exercise of not my little bubble of the stuff that I have uh, stewardship over or your bubble, whatever it is, but rather in the sense of God wants all this to be together. It's his vineyard. Everything is his and it's all connected. And so how do we share that responsibly as stewards with one another? If we're in community and if we're connected to one another and we're discipling one another, um, we should be able to speak into each other's lives in order to champion other people being successful or what they're called to be stewards of. In order to help them when they're finding hard times. In order for them to help champion and encourage or, or, or help steward or help to disciple me when I might not be the best steward. The idea of like we're all in this together to make our Father's vineyard better. That's the attitude that he's calling us to have. It's the attitude that he died for us to have and that we struggle with at times. It requires, again, sacrifice. But again, this is what he says. This is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers 
and secure. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity to come into your word, uh, even when it uh, is in direct conflict to the way our society seems to work at times. We're grateful for glimpses of what we see when it comes to the farmer who was injured, trying not to hit a puppy. Uh, but Lord, you died to give us something even greater than that story of farmers coming together. You died so that we can be brothers and sisters, connected more deeply than anything else in the created universe, but through the blood of Christ. To do so in a way that is connected and close and encouraging one another, stirring one another into love and good works, gathering together. I'm thankful for this morning. I'm thankful for the Wednesday nights that are coming up. That's going to give us a greater opportunity to do that. But Lord, I pray that the connection within our church, that the support of one another would be more than just Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. But that it would be day to day in the coffee shops, in the workplaces, in each other's homes. As we look to live out the life that you bought for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.